Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, finally back with you for the week of Saturday, November 28th of the year 2018, or 2020, excuse me. Ooh, I know, time flies. Uh, of the year 2020, I am Mike the Legend. Thank you so much for joining us once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hope you are all well and uh, hope you are going to enjoy this episode as we enjoy bringing it to you as we've been away for the last, eh, it feels probably like longer than it has been, but uh, we are now getting back into the swing of things and uh, uh, I'm all here for it. My body is ready. Yes, I as well. I'm here for it, as you said. Um, this week, I'm Dennis, the man who fondly remembers the days when he had a fully functioning bathroom in his home. <laughs> that is a very specific and uh, a very well stipulated uh, nickname you have this week. It, it's almost as if you want to talk about it. Do you, do you want to get something off your chest? Is this is this just an entry point into some some venting that needs to happen? I, I'm here for it. I, I'm here uh, to be your sounding board, to be the shoulder you need to lean on in these uh, troubling times. What ails you, my son? <laughs> well, you know, it's just, you know, in life as an adult, as you grow up and do certain things, like if you become a homeowner at some point, it's an inevitability that you're going to you know, hire contractors to do something on your house at some point, very likely, unless you, you know, super rich and you've bought a brand new house and, you know, you'll never need to do that because whatever, like, unless you live in a house for like 30 years, things probably won't break down. But for the rest of us, you know, we have to sometimes hire contractors to make repairs or, you know, in the case of what, you know, we were doing at my place this last, what has, what is now two and a bit weeks, um, getting our bathroom redone our main bathroom upstairs you know with the you know getting everything redone new tub new everything everything basically but basically yeah. new, you took it down to the studs didn't you pretty much on most on two of the two of the four walls yes down to the studs you know start fresh cool um but yeah so Regardless, you know, it's not like the most extravagantly sized bathroom or anything like that. You know, pretty standard five foot by eight foot kind of room. Um, you know, basically the understanding I got, you know, when talking to a couple of friends who are in the contractor type industry is that a bathroom of that size to redo it, you know, would be, you know, in the vicinity of, you know, a week, week and a bit. But we are at two weeks now with the contractors that we hired and, uh, yeah, it's uh, looking like hopefully it might wrap up in a couple more days after the weekend, I hope. But yeah, it's just uh, not to complain too much about people for, you know, whatever they are doing good work, but it's going slower than I thought. And it's, uh, yeah, making me um, very reminiscent of the old days when I could, you know, just easily take a shower and stuff. <laughs> Ah, uh, wax nostalgic for when you just had your your own loo to uh, to do your things in without uh, without any problems. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, like you know, we have another bathroom in the basement that's you know not you know it needs work as well, but it's it's functional at least, so we haven't been totally screwed. But it you know having strangers in your house for an extended period of time is draining and not really you know the best thing to have to go through all the time. Even if they are the most pleasant people in the world, it's like you still feel like you have to act 
a certain way because it's like they're strangers in the house and, you know, they're, you know, they're strangers and, you know, I don't want to do whatever. I, I don't know. Like, I mean, at the very least you have to wear pants. Yeah, pretty much. Like bare minimum, so, you have to wear pants when strangers are in your house. Yeah. That in itself is taxing. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but yes. <laughs> I mean, in these times when uh, more and more people have been uh, 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 sent to work from home, you have been uh, doing the work from home thing for a couple months now. And I've, I've been doing the work from home thing for eight months now. Jesus H. Christ. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, where did that time go? <laughs> I don't know. Remember when we were talking about how like everything felt like it slowed right down? Yeah, that was, that seems like a blip on the radar now because everything has picked back up and it's faster than before. Yeah. It's like, oh, yes, hey, life is. feels like it was going at, you know, warp nine. Now it's at warp 12. <laughs> yeah. Life is now just taxing those dilithium crystals. <laughs> Jordy yeah. LaForge is frantically trying to keep up and replace them as best as he can. But, uh, you know, it's going to take three weeks, Captain. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. All I'm saying is I just want my, my bathroom to be done and my house back because, uh, yeah, other people are kind of the worst. It's true. I mean, you're put out and also the fact that it might just be one room that's having worked on, but it's going to spread out and impact other aspects of the house too. Yeah. It, yeah, I mean, they have a bunch of stuff set up in the basement, and they have, you know, th- that kind of thing, and, like, you're you're kind of, like, waiting, you're like, okay, well, can, is it safe to move this furniture back, or can I do this, or is it safe if I do this, or, you know, do I have to schedule my calls that I have to regularly make in my job, like... Like, do I have to schedule my video calls during a time when they're not going to be using, like, the saw, like, really loudly or anything? Because that's also, like, that's a thing that happened a little bit when, you know, I had to basically be like, I'm sorry, can we wait half an hour? I'm not sure if it's going to be done by then or, like, or, like, I'd be talking to people. Then all of a sudden, like, I couldn't hear anything because it's like, oh, that's some loud sawing sounds. Huh. Yeah, it's, yeah. That's fun times, fun times. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, it's compounded but, by, the, by the fact you're working from home and you have this all right there. So yeah. you're just on edge the whole time. But, you know, having said that, it truly is a first world problem and I can't really complain. I mean, I'm still one of the fortunate ones who's able to work during this whole COVID pandemic. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to be able to hire contractors during this COVID pandemic. So. I'm not in a situation where it's, you know, been really, you know, super stressful financially or anything on me. So this complaint is really just sort of like more just like a general, like, ah, I want my, want my house back kind of thing. But like, I guess I got to be thankful because at least I can still pay for stuff. So that's just my first world problems, ranting, complaining thing at the start of the show here. And do you feel, do you feel better now having, uh, having said all those words? Yeah, uh, sort of. I'll be, I'll feel better when the bathroom's done. (laughs) 
I mean, as it looks so far, is it worth it? Yes, I think so. Like they're they're doing good work. I know I'm sounding like I'm complaining a lot, but they're doing good good looking work anyway. So yeah, I mean, ultimately you will get through this. You will have a nice refresh bathroom, and you will be able to uh, uh, to make it to your own space once again. Yes. It's just in the immediate, uh, you know, experience of the here and the now when you're in the middle of it, it's not so pleasant. No, it's, it's not. And I think, uh, many of us out there have had those similar experiences to where it's like, ah, oh, this is really inconvenient and sucks, but, you know, it's a blip on the radar, but man, right now it's, it's crummy. I'm not liking it. Yes, crummy. <laughs> to, to use a polite phrase. Yes. Very polite phrase. <laughs> yes, a uh, a certainly not profane word that uh, perhaps you and I would uh, use in uh, casual daily life. Yes, exactly. A word I would normally use is not crummy, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's perhaps uh, it would be one of the seven words you uh, can't say on television. <laughs> yes, or all of the seven words I can't <laughs> say on television, just strung together. Yep. Uh, f- fair. I think you and uh, many other people would uh, be in that same boat of expressions, but, you know, trying to keep it a, a, a PG-rated podcast here. Don't want to get that explicit rating. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that's for the next podcast. Yes, it is. <laughs> Mike and Dennis, no holds barred. Mike and Dennis, after dark. <laughs> <laughs> See, I feel like with something, you know, Titled that as menacing as it's uh, and intense as the title might seem, it in my mind is conjuring an image of just kind of you and I enjoying a, a little uh, aperitif, you know, in some sort of you know smoking jacket with pipes by a in the reading room by a fire and whatnot, just uh, just discussing the day's events and whatnot. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> kind of like the old brothers from uh, from Trading Places. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> <laughs> but not exactly like those old brothers from Changing Spaces. I mean, they they were they were racists, and they, I don't like to think of myself as a racist. No, I uh, no. I mean, we're not taking all of that, but you know, our <laughs> own spin on it. Sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, maybe in, perhaps enjoying a snifter of port. <laughs> Have you tried port? It's not good. <laughs> I'm just going to straight up say it. It's not good. I don't know if I've ever had the opportunity to try or turn down port. It's just never been in my in my sphere. I had bought a bottle once just out of curiosity and tried to muscle through a lot of it, and it's just ugh, not my thing. Isn't it thicker? Like a thicker yes. alcoholic beverage? It tastes like you're drinking, like, cough syrup? With the same type consistency as cough syrup. <laughs> I mean, do, does it uh, warm and lubricate the back of your throat and uh, soothe any sort of uh, cough and chest congestion? I mean, I didn't check the ingredients <laughs> that much, so I couldn't tell if it had, you know, Buckley's or anything in it, but may I mean, I didn't feel any better after drinking it ever, so <laughs> I don't know. See, the problem is you probably didn't drink enough. Sure. <laughs> That's what they always say about alcoholic beverages. <laughs> if you don't like the first couple of sips, just keep drinking it. You'll eventually come around. 
Oh man. How much did you get through of that bottle anyway? I think half, I, I think it actually might still be in my fridge. I bought it probably two years ago and it might be, I think it's still in my fridge, but like I came across it somewhat recently because it was behind like, you know, a big water jug kind of thing that I just refill and forgot about it. And it's like, Oh, that's not ever going to get drank. <laughs> I might've actually thrown it out, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was tough. I, I'll, I guess it also helps that I'm not super into red wine, which I know like ports are normally like they're fortified wine and you know, most of them are just sort of not, they're not fortifying white wine because that doesn't really make sense. But yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you for the pro tip. I, I may now avoid uh, a snifter of port. I, I may not even do a shot of port. <laughs> yes. Good. Port, port may just be off my radar entirely now because of your recommendations to avoid it. Yes. You'd be wise to do so. Thank you. <laughs> and that concludes uh, the sommelier corner with Dennis. And uh, we will now turn our attention to uh, what we normally open the program with, aside from beverage recommendations or uh, avoidances. Uh, we will start with the ludicrous leadoff. How about that? Uh, yeah, that sounds- Sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah, to try and get things somewhat back on the rails. Uh, we have one item for you this week. It is an item that is just a little bit extra kind of special uh, than all the other stories we have to talk about on this program. And uh, speaking of those brothers, the, the old white brothers from Trading Places, they had a lot of money. And they had more money than they really knew what to do with to the point that they are just making casual wagers with other people's lives. Such was their level of wealth. And when you achieve that level of wealth, uh, you can, you can spend it ridiculously. You can spend it on whatever you wish, perhaps even on, uh, way too much for a video game. Yeah. So we've talked about video games going for way too much money, you know, a f- several times actually in the last year, year and a bit. Um, we've seen some world record, you know, values be, um, broken really by, Various old NES titles, for example, like I think there was a, uh, a copy of, uh, what was it? World Championships? Yeah, the World Championships was found and sold for some big amount of money. Like I want to say it was like $80,000. I know there was a complete sealed, a complete inbox sealed copy of the original Super Mario Brothers that was in really pristine condition because someone found it in an attic that was never touched from like Christmas of 1990. And they just took it to be appraised and got a high rating. And then I think sold it on eBay for, or not eBay, some other bigger auction site for, I want to say it was like $120,000. If I'm remembering this correctly, $114,000. Yes. Yeah. Six figures is, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, 114,000, which, I mean, took us by surprise that, you know, what was kind of a ubiquitous game back in the day would go for such a large figure. But of course, I think it was pretty early edition, if not one of the first runs of the copy, uh, of that game. Yeah, it was. But yeah, I mean, and that I think was the, the record that was set this year. And we thought, well, it's going to be a while since before we see this record broken because like what else is going to possibly warrant breaking this record of 114,000 US dollars for a single video game? 
Well, um, we have now found what would have break, what will break, or what did break that record, I should say, because the record is now broken and the record is now a fair amount higher. The record now sits at 156,000 US dollars, and that is the price at auction that was paid for a still sealed, essentially pristine copy of Super Mario Brothers 3 from the NES. Now, you might be thinking, well, what the hell is so special about this? I mean, I've got Super Mario Brothers 3, everyone had Super Mario Brothers 3 for the NES, and that's true. What makes this so special is it is one of the rare, quote-unquote, left bros copies of the game. And what I mean by left bros is in the very early uh, prints, prints of Mario Brothers 3 for NES, uh, if you recall the box art, bright yellow Mario flying through the air on the bottom part of the cover art of the game or of the game box and the word mark Super Mario Brothers 3 right on top of him. However, the word bros, the very bottom uh, line in the three word word mark at the top of the case was adjusted to the left side in the alignment of the wording. So the word bros was covering over Mario's hand in later copies of the game. And in most copies of the game that people have, the word bros has been adjusted to the right hand side of the word alignment and is not covering any part of Mario's glove or Mario's hand, but it's those left bro, uh, copies of the game that really go for the sweetest cash. And this is not just one of those, but it's a still sealed pristine copy that I believe was graded as a 9.2 a plus copy of the game. So it's, it's damn near perfect. Yeah. And that's what contributed to the very high price that uh, was paid uh, by someone. We don't know who, uh, usually, uh, these names of the purchasers are not made known, and for good reason. For very good reason. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't want it known, A, that you've got the money to pay these ridiculous amounts for these items, these rare copies of video games, and also, you don't want it known that you now have this rare copy of this video game. Yes, you also want to avoid the angry mob, you know, basically chasing you to be like, why are you spending such ridiculous amounts of money on such things? But I guess I say that, but then, you know, think, oh, actually art collectors have been doing that for years. So art collectors, car collectors, uh, comic collectors too. Yep. The sports card collectors. I mean, look how many millions, uh, you know, the old Honus Wagner baseball card goes for. God, when yes. it comes up for auction every couple of years, uh, look at a copy of Superman number one or Action Comics number one, I should say. Yes. You know, the collectors uh, are, you know, basically buy these things to turn and flip them in a couple of years' time. They treat them as investment pieces. And this is kind of the recurring thing we saw over the past 18 months when these games would sell for what struck us as crazy prices. But uh, I actually believe. It was uh, last fall I had read a piece on Kotaku kind of exploring where this money is coming into game collecting from, and it's coming from outside game collecting. So it's coming from people who have you know, been in the art collecting world for years, comic collecting, sports card collecting, things of that nature, just the collecting game for years, now turning their attention to the video game market because it's still fairly young, fairly untapped, and prices are still 
reasonable by compare to, comparison to some of those other fields. Yeah. And so, you know, 156,000 for a copy of Mario Brothers 3, still sealed, pristine, you know, 9.2 A plus rating, seems like a lot. I mean, to you and I and the majority of people out there, that's, that's just a lot of money and that's just way too much money to spend on one single item like this. But to a collector who's got a collection of very valuable pieces and can afford these things, that's a drop in the goddamn bucket. Yeah, it really is. So this uh, item was sold at auction through Heritage Auctions uh, on November 20th in Heritage Auctions. Uh, they're the auction house that uh, we've seen most often deal with these rare and uh, very valuable video game pieces. After the uh, all was said and done and the price is paid and I assume the check cleared and money was transferred, uh, they put out a press release. Uh, in there, they said, quote, while the condition of the game is remarkable, what makes this copy even more singular is the layout of the packaging itself. Exceedingly rare are sealed copies with the word bros formatted to the left, covering one of Mario's signature white gloves. Collectors have spent years looking for such a, such a version, the earliest in the Super Mario Brothers 3 production history, and usually come up empty-handed. So again, finding a box of Mario Brothers 3 with the word bros on the left side is hard to do to find one that's still sealed in such a good condition as this. I mean, I mean, it's a white whale. I mean, you, good luck finding it. You probably won't. It's a unicorn almost. So yeah. a very expensive unicorn. Yeah. But uh, that wasn't the only valuable game sold in that particular auction bunch by heritage auctions. Uh, there was a red version of Pokemon for uh, the original game boy that was rated 9.8 a plus plus, so an even better, even more pristine copy of a game than what this Mario Brothers three was. That sold for eighty four thousand U.S. dollars, which is the highest price paid ever for a Pokemon title. Almost a hundred thousand dollars for a copy of Pokemon. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Apparently, that uh, the sale price was four times the original estimate that perhaps Heritage Auctions put on it for what it would make. So, good God. Yeah, like, that's... <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, I've got some video games, <laughs> but are they in that condition? Like, probably not, but I don't know. Hmm. If you want to uh, check it out for yourself, uh, we have the link to uh, the Heritage Auctions press release on our website, thearcadeshow.com, and... Uh, check it out, read it for yourself, and then click around the Heritage Auctions page uh, itself. See what other items they have up for bid. Uh, perhaps there's something on there that tickles your fancy, maybe maybe gets you thinking, huh, uh, maybe I should check out my own collection. Or you find a piece that uh, you know, you're interested in, or it's even just fun to browse and just kind of uh, uh, window shop, in a sense. Uh, to see what uh, what items they have and what they're going for. So not everything is a crazy expensive price like this. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, if a couple hundred bucks, depending on what uh, the item is and the condition, you can get a still sealed copy of, uh, you know, something for an older system. No, it's just fun to browse. That's, it's, that's my takeaway from things. So, yeah. And just think like, ah, what could be if I had an endless supply of money? <laughs> I mean, like globally or like, or, uh, just like in general in the world or just for yourself. 
I mean, I, I got to take care of myself first here. Oh, man. I, I mean, sure, sure. You know, I'll get to solving the world's pro- problems in a bit. But, you know, I, I got to be I got to look at myself in the mirror, at, you know, every night before I go to sleep. And, you know, am I happy with myself in that moment? Did I make the right choices? Did I did I actually get that sealed copy of Mario Brothers three that I wanted? Yeah. <laughs> and then when I'm satisfied, we we tackle the bigger issues. Sure. I mean, now that I've spent, spent $156,000 on that copy of Super Mario Bros. 3, now I'm ready to start solving world hunger. Like, okay. Yeah, all you need to have is that one one thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that was the missing piece, you know? Now now I'm complete. Okay. Oh, man. Hey, you know, think local, act global. That's That's all I'm doing. Sure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but getting into the meat and potatoes of this show, it's a very business, uh, heavy, uh, show we have for you on, uh, or this week. Uh, a lot of numbers coming at you, a lot of business, uh, business of gaming industry type topics, as we're just playing a bit of catch up here as we've been away for a little bit. Um, with Dennis's bathroom renovations taking up his time and his uh, just quality of life and whatnot and uh, misaligned schedules and whatnot. So we have to catch up on some things. But, uh, uh, you know, money is going to be a predominant thing throughout this program, this particular program. And uh, I think the the one place we should start was kind of the surprise announcement that came down uh, within the past week or two. Maybe you heard of it. Uh, maybe you didn't. It's... It may have flown under your radar, but this has big implications for a lot of people who are developers and have apps that are available through, um, well, through Apple's ecosystem. Apple making the announcement that they are going to be cutting in half the, uh, the, their take of revenues from apps on their iOS store or app store, I should say. Yeah. So the normal cut that Apple would take is 30%. That apparently being reduced to 15%. Yeah. So I can't help but think that this might actually be because of Epic Games. Go on. Is this perhaps uh, you're saying that uh, Apple's response to this uh, and perhaps the bad publicity and uh, uh, Epic trying to kind of expose the, the BS uh, take that Apple would uh, insist on having for every, basically every transaction on the, uh, on the app store, trying to make them look uh, perhaps a bit better. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> if I'm being honest, they don't look good in my eyes. Like they shouldn't really look good in anyone's eyes, given how, you know, they're ridiculous. It was 30% just across the board, no matter how much money you were making, 30% of it was going towards Apple. So even if you're a tiny developer, you know, you're making, I don't know, if <laughs> like 30% is a lot if you're making 30,000. Like if, if you've got $1,000 in sales, that's $300 gone. Like you're only making like, you know, 60% of whatever you'd be making. So that's 600 bucks like on every thousand dollars. So like it, it adds up. So yeah. And like, it's, it's one of those, it really is sort of like an antitrust thing in my opinion anyways, because 
like, yeah, sure, they own the devices, they own the, the marketplace and stuff, but why is there no ability to have an alternative marketplace on this device? Like, why, like, I, I get why in quotation marks, but why actually? Like, <laughs> that's, uh, that's uh, a good question that, you know, obviously you and uh, many other people have been asking. And I wonder if this move by Apple to reduce their take, their share of uh, other people's profits is perhaps in some way setting them up uh, in case there's a future with other marketplaces, other avenues on Apple devices. So if, if other, if there's antitrust legislation that comes down, perhaps in Europe, in the United States, whatever jurisdiction, which I think, I think the European Union is already looking into it. Uh, yeah. In, yeah. Uh, for antitrust, uh, uh, regulations of Apple and other developers is if there's a future day when people can have marketplace options to get their apps through, you know, the app store or Apple's own app store or, you know, Tom's app store or whatever the case might be, or just through an independent storefront entirely. Like, why can't I just go using a web browser, download a thing? Like, yeah, sure. I know the risks that it's not been vetted by Apple. So fine. Like have like, I, I know that there is a possibility that there are people out there now using phones that they never would have had to actually have gone through the pain of like, you know, trial and error with software on old computers. But like, that's how it used to be back in the old days. Not that I'm saying that that was any better or any worse, but you would buy software from basically anywhere and you'd install it on your computer and then you'd hope it work. (laughs) You know, like if it doesn't work, Oh, well, I guess I'll just take her back to the store or, you know, Oh, well, like if I bought it online or whatever, like, I guess it doesn't work. Shoot. I guess I'll either have to upgrade my computer or do something else or whatever, like happens all the time. Like, why is it that, you know, these phones that we have in our pockets that are, by all rights, super advanced computers, like the phone I'm holding currently in my hand is like orders of magnitude faster than computers I like I would have talked about, you know, that happening to way back in the day, like 20 years ago kind of thing. Like back when we would be installing software that we would have bought in the store off of like disks. Yeah, like you had choices. Like if, if George the software developer wants to, you know, give you his Mahjong game, you know, he could just give you a disc and you could just install it from wherever or you could download it off of his website and install it there. Why do I have to now go through the official Apple only, you know, storefront to do this? The reason they'll tell you is so that, you know, they can make sure that all the games and apps and everything that are there are 100% compatible with their device, but what I think it actually is is so that, you know, they can force the developers to jump through a bunch of hoops just so that, you know, if you're targeting a specific device, that it'll perform a certain way, which kind of, you know, it's, it's sort of a safety net fine, but like when you extend it into actually like the problems, not actually with performance and actually with someone making money that you're not aware of, then it gets into like sketchy antitrust territory, 
right? Oh, it absolutely does. And this has uh, long been the uh, critique of uh, Apple. And you can extend that to, to say, Google or really any uh, sort of digital or electronic entity that operates their own uh, walled ecosystem, their own walled garden where they control the marketplace and they take a cut of every transaction. You know, look at Sony, look at Microsoft, look at Nintendo, you know, these companies who have their own marketplace and they get a cut of what happens on it. Yeah. Because there's no alternative and they don't allow any alternative because they also control these systems. So if, if Apple is taking this approach now of saying that uh, starting January 1st, 2021, they're going to cut in half their take uh, from 30% down to 15%, does this uh, perhaps make them competitive if, say, Epic Games is one day allowed to have an app store on Apple devices? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've seen uh, we've seen Epic Games take on uh, Steam and uh, the digital games marketplace that way and uh, fight for and put in the work and effort into making uh, better deals for uh, developers in that digital marketplace by taking on steam. So it, and they've got to, they are flush with cash. I mean, they're not, they're not Apple rich, but they're still very rich themselves. Yeah. I mean, to put it lightly, I mean, Fortnite is sort of like a cultural phenomenon. <laughs> so when you're a cultural phenomenon, there's always money attached to being one. And what what did they make like as a result of Fortnite? I mean, they do other things other than Fortnite, but almost single handedly because of Fortnite, their valuation rose to what seventeen billion dollars or something. Yes, yeah. In their most recent round of, uh, I guess, fundraising or or you know, capital funding or whatnot. Yeah, uh, I think it worked out to seventeen and a half, if not seventeen point eight billion, which I mean is a drop in the bucket. Com- drop in the bucket compared to Apple who's a trillion dollar company, if not very close to it, if not slightly more than trillion dollars. So there's that, but still, I mean, they're about as big as someone can be to take on Apple. Yes. Actually, technically they're a $2 trillion company. Oh, I'm sorry. I, well then they're even more of a, of the Goliath compared to Epic games David. Yeah. So, like, yeah, that's an unfathomable amount of money, by the way. So, the fact that they're basically policing people trying to make even more money off of their very popular devices, it's just, it's scummy. And I mean, yeah, sure, lowering the fees to 15%, maybe will do a little bit of, you know, good towards their image here, but like, it doesn't change the fact that I know they're a $2 billion company. $2 trillion. Yeah, so sorry, $2 trillion company. Like, even like, a $2 billion company would, would just be enough, but it's $2 trillion, so it's the, like the next order of magnitude. Yeah. Like, that's a thousand, that's 2,000 billion, which is 2 million million. <laughs> like, that's... That's so much money that I can't comprehend it. I don't think anyone can comprehend that amount of money. Like, you know, everyone in business uh, often says that uh, the first million is the hardest to make, but really, it's the first trillion that's the hardest. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 
Sure. <laughs> sure. So uh, as of January 1st, as I said, 2021, any developers on the App Store who earned under a million dollars in revenue during the previous fiscal year will qualify for these reduced rates, allowing them more takeaway from uh, in-app purchases and app purchases as well. Apple is claiming that the vast majority, quote-unquote, will benefit from these reduced fees and that the initiative will, quote, accelerate innovation and help small businesses and developers propel their business forward, end quote. All of this uh, initiative is being sold under something called the App Store Small Business Program. So it's not Apple trying to uh, gain better publicity and just, you know, look like a less evil uh, money-grubbing capitalist company, but they're just trying to help the little guys out there. If Apple wants to impress me, which obviously they don't give a they don't give a shit about me, who cares? I'm just one guy, but if they want to impress me, make it free for up to a million dollars. Ooh. Like or make it free up to a certain point. Like come on. <laughs> like if you really want to facilitate people, you know, doing good in business and stuff, make it free. Hell, you might end up with a viral hit on your hands that if it's just a thing they've only developed for an iPhone that becomes the next killer app for the iPhone. Not that you need another killer app for the iPhone, whatever. I'm sure there's no shortage of things, of reasons why people would be using iPhones at this point, but still like, where's the harm in that? Like, like I, I don't get it. And also too, I'd imagine that the majority of Apple's, app store based revenue like the of what they get their cuts from has only got to come from you know perhaps a dozen of the most successful apps that are doing the most transactions well maybe maybe not though i mean maybe true literally is a thing of like yeah i don't know i guess it's like the old fake bill go the fake bill gates quote from you know, that episode of The Simpsons where Homer started an internet company and Bill Gates was quote unquote buying him out and he was saying, you know, what, you thought I got rich by writing a lot of checks? <laughs> Buy him out, boys. Yeah. They just wreck his office. <laughs> Break all his pencils. Yep. <laughs> Didn't they smash his butter too? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> So Apple has way too much money and they're going to try and look better, um, you know, by not taking as much money come the new year. But, you know, they're still taking money. So, oh, yeah, they're still going to get their share because, you know, they're giving you the privilege of jumping all through through all their hoops to get into their walled ecosystem. So they they (laughs) deserve something for all that effort. Like, imagine the innovation we would have if this was free. And not all going to one of five big tech companies. Yeah. Like, I don't know. If people were just able to develop apps and release them without having to jump through a bunch of hoops and pay for a bunch of licenses, it would be very different. Or if like, they would just let more stuff happen through the internet. I mean, this is exactly why Microsoft is trying to do, to get some of their, um, their streaming technology to work through a web browser because they don't want to have to go through any of this app store nonsense. And, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to say, no, you're just loading a web page. Like, yeah, sure. There's a storefront in the web page, but that's no different than like buying something on Amazon or, you know, 
you know, paying for Netflix or something and just watching Netflix through your web browser. Like, yeah, Netflix doesn't have the same regulations on, on iOS that, uh, Apple tries to impose on Microsoft, uh, for their, you know, Game Pass or, uh, even for Google with Stadia or, uh, I believe NVIDIA with GeForce Now, like any sort of online game service has more onerous regulations to go on Apple devices than Netflix. Yeah. But, uh, I believe uh, in the past uh, few days I've, I've have been reading that Google is actually going to take the Microsoft uh, approach and uh, release Stadia through a web app or web based uh, page for Safari or just Apple, you know, browsers so it can be used on Apple devices without having to go through the actual app store. And I think uh, GeForce Now is going to take that same approach as well to just bypass Apple as much as they can. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, those haven't officially happened yet, but uh, it sounds like they're in the offing as people are just kind of getting tired of Amazon or not. Uh, yeah. Well, people are getting tired of Amazon shit too, but getting tired of Apple's shit as well. Yeah. Different reasons for those two. <laughs> Entirely. But uh, uh, in there, we mentioned uh, Microsoft and uh, now we're going to go into the portion of the show that is uh, just all about unsubstantiated business claims. Yeah, so the Microsoft, or, yeah, Microsoft released the Xbox Series X and S. PlayStation released the PlayStation 5, or Sony released the PlayStation 5, I should say. And they're all claiming that, unsurprisingly, they're the biggest console launches ever. Both companies are claiming this. And providing no data to back anything up. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I know for certain is that no one's been able to get a PlayStation 5. (laughs) People are just talking about how, you know, it's been basically brutal online trying to find one because everywhere is sold out. And people are, like, talking about, like, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, drips and drabs of information on social media, people basically like acting on rumors being like, Oh, Walmart's going to have a drop at 12 PM tomorrow. I heard check it out. It's just like, okay. So you're just basically getting people to camp on their computers and stuff and that. And like, and then it's, it's almost making me wonder. I'm like, I've never heard of supply problems with any company other than Nintendo in the past. Is this basically just, people buying things just to sell like to jack the price up and try to sell on eBay because, you know, I've seen PlayStation fives go on, you know, the second hand market for currently for far higher than the price that they're actually selling for, which is kind of like making me think it's like, is this just, you know, how toilet paper was at the start of this pandemic? <laughs> like, well, there's not actually, like, there's, there's not actually a shortage, but, you just get a bunch of people buying them up just to kind of like try to sell them for like create an artificial shortage and, you know, jack the demand and price up. So I don't know. Are any of those people actually making money doing that though? That's, I guess, another question, but, but yeah, uh, I guess maybe as regardless of all of this stuff here, Sony is saying that must've contributed to their best console launch ever, but, Again, we don't have any real data to back it up. Same thing with Microsoft, though I haven't seen the level of shortages and stuff. So maybe, maybe Microsoft is just more legitimately selling more Xboxes. I don't know, but they're also saying it's been 
either company's biggest console launch ever. So, and again, without providing any sort of data or details to back that up, uh, Microsoft made the claim. Initially, they were the first ones out of the gate with these unsubstantiated, boastful claims uh, back on November 12th, saying that uh, the Xbox Series X and S had broken sales records for the company in their first 24 hours of release. Uh, Phil Spencer, the chief of the Xbox division, said, quote, thank you for supporting the largest launch in Xbox history in 24 hours. More new consoles have been sold in more countries than ever before. Uh, we're working with retail partners to re- uh, resupply as quickly as possible. You continue to show us the connective power of play is more important than ever, end quote. So, uh, so that initial out-of-the-gate launch of Microsoft for the Series X and Series S is uh, what Microsoft as a company is saying has done gangbusters, been the best in the company's launch, which, in fairness, this is only their fourth console. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, their, some of their previous consoles have had problems. Look at the launch of the Xbox 360 and the manufacturing issues and problems it had with the Red Ring of Death that may have suppressed demand for it. Yeah. But mind you, having said that, though, Sony also had issues with... Um, PlayStation 3s when they first came out as well with the the weird issue where they were becoming unseated. It, they had a different snappy name for it, like a Yellow Light of Death, I think it was. Um, but yeah, so... Yeah, I don't know. It, they're both claiming it's their bests. We'll have to wait to actually see what the sales numbers actually are. But that's uh, strong words, especially from Sony. Because the PlayStation 2 was sort of like the best-selling console of all time. So if they're saying that the PlayStation 5 is a better launch than the PlayStation 2, that's kind of surprising to me. And also, too, that it's sold better than the PlayStation 4, which, I mean, even though it's uh, you know many years old at this point, uh, I believe, what, seven years old at this point, the PlayStation 4 has had solid sales pretty much all through its life cycle. Yeah. It's it, it really has not had any problems uh, since its launch. Uh, I believe the PlayStation 4, according to Chris Kerr of Gamasutra, who wrote that the PlayStation 4 uh, amassed a record-setting 2.1 million in console sales after two weeks on shelves way back in 2013. So for Sony to now say that the PS5 is uh, the company's biggest console launch ever would mean that it's done better than 2.1 million units sold in two weeks' time, which is still impressive. And also, there's still a greater pent-up demand, it seems, for the PlayStation 5, with so many people having problems online trying to track down and source a goddamn PlayStation 5. Yeah. So is this uh, Sony taking the Nintendo approach of trying to throttle demand so it just lasts for a longer period of time? I don't know. Have they had production issues uh, related to the COVID pandemic? Or uh, one of the reasons, uh, maybe, uh, something that I read just a couple days ago, apparently in the UK, I believe it is, if not the UK, then somewhere in uh, Europe, but there's a ring of scalpers, about 300 scalpers, who between all of them have amassed several thousand PlayStation 5 units. Well- that's exactly what I'm saying, though. Like how I mentioned before, like is this just like how what happened with the toilet paper at the start of the pandemic? Like I'm not being coy about this. It's just literally like there was no actual toilet paper shortage until everyone literally started buying up and hoarding toilet paper for no reason. 
So when you do that, of course there's going to become a shortage. Like a shortage is going to happen when you create a shortage by buying way too much of it. Like, like if people are expecting, like if, if Sony was expecting everyone who had a PlayStation four to buy a PlayStation five, or like they probably have some formula of like, okay, we know we sold this many of our previous console and this percentage of people typically buy the new console on launch day. So if we make that much, we'll be fine. But when you have, you know, an inordinate of number of people just basically buying up multiple of a console just to buy it and just sell, resell it for fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars $1,600, which is are some of the prices I've seen. Like, of course you're going to have supply problems. So like, I, I hope those people wasted all their money and I hope people, no one buys anything off of scalpers. Like, like this, I, <laughs> this is one thing I've wondered, uh, whenever we come up to these new console launches and, and without fail, there's going to be people buying up a bunch, uh, selling it for scalper prices. Or even if it's, uh, like as we're getting cl- close to Christmas time, it's the, the hot toy item for that Christmas, a tickle me Elmo, a Furby, a you know, cabbage patch kid to go back to the eighties or cabbage patch doll to go back to the eighties. Like there'll most often be some sort of like hot toy item everyone wants it's hard to find people buy up a bunch and just you know have it listed for way too much money do people actually pay those prices though i i hope not i know people were paying those prices for the tickle me elmos i'd like to think that the playstation 5 isn't the same thing as that cuz the tickle me elmo that's literally like the toy that you're your four-year-old is screaming at you about, or your three-year-old or whatever screaming at you about, like, I want to have a Tickle Me Elmo, I want to have a Tickle Me Elmo, whatever. Like, I feel, I, I might be incorrect, I'm not a parent, I have no idea, but I feel that little little children aren't going to have the same attachment to a video game console necessarily like that. Like, I, I feel that it's not the same type of thing. Like, it's it's a console. It's more like, you know, like they might see their dad playing video games or something, but like, as far as they probably have it in their head, like they already have video games. Like, it's just like probably just some concept that they're not really aware of yet. Right. Uh, possibly depends on how, how little, how, how young you were talking about. I can speak from my own family experience as I have a uh, young nephew who's uh, less than 10, who, I mean, he's grown up with video games his entire life. I mean, he's, he took to Mario Kart on the Wii at a very young age and has had a controller in his hand basically ever, ever since. And now frequently will play Call of Duty with his dad on a PlayStation 4. Um, uh, I think I was told the other day that uh, his grandma was asking him, you know, what do you want for Christmas? His instant response without even missing a beat or even stopping to think about it was a PlayStation 5. Wants a new okay. console. Now, you know, I was told this and my response was, yeah, he wants it because it's new. I, w- I was the exact same way, too, uh, when I was that age. Come yeah. Christmas time, make out the Christmas list. Oh, first couple items, I want Sega Saturn. I want, you know, um, PlayStation. I want, you know, this thing. Because it's the, the new game console, and you want it because it's new. Yeah, of course. So, so I think that, you know, still maintains. But will they actually get it? Probably not. In this no. case, sure as hell hope not. 
No, but like, and I guess that's also another contributing factor. Like the scalper prices for Tickle Me Elmo's, from what I recall, like a Tickle Me Elmo at the time was not a $500 big ticket item. It was like, I think it was like a $50, $60 item and the scalpers were upselling it to like a 200-ish kind of dollar price and making a hearty profit. This is like a $500, $600 item that's being upsold to like $1,500 by scalpers. So it seems like a different order of magnitude in my head. It does, and that's my sense of it as well. And that could be a contributing factor uh, to this. Um, And and this is something I always wonder too, to go online, look at prices for something perhaps you're you're genuinely interested in. I know in the past I've, you know, looked on eBay for um, N64 games, perhaps ones I don't have in my collection interested in them just to get an idea of prices you go on and look and uh, perhaps it's something that's a bit more rare hard to find well the sellers all seem to be looking at what everyone else is selling it for and charging the same price accordingly and then i've wondered too who the hell is paying these prices also if if the sellers are all charging fairly consistently the same price through all their different listings how do you sell a product what makes you different than someone else charging it for the same price. Maybe yeah. undercut it, sell it for or list it for less, and have a greater chance of actually moving the product and then getting a profit. Yeah. Regardless, like I, I hope all of those like I was saying, I hope all of those, you know, people who created this big scalping ring, I hope they all end up out a ton of money. And like as such I hope they end up having to basically unload all these PlayStation 5s for cheaper than what you could get it in the store eventually just to try to get some money back. Ooh, that they take a loss. Oh, yeah. Like, I hope they do take a loss because, like, you're an idiot. And, like, there's no reason for this shortage in my head unless, of course, again, with the caveat of, like, unless Sony did artificially create a shortage – but I somehow don't think that that's the case with Sony. That hasn't been their track record so far. Like Nintendo, yeah, I, I get it, but Sony doesn't seem like it. Now, if we recall back to uh, the fall, I believe August or September it was, when both Microsoft and Sony had uh, their retail partners uh, do and go through with pre-orders for their consoles, uh, that was a bit of a schlamozzle at the time, too, because... Pretty much all the retail partners sold out of their available pre-order stock in no time, which should have signaled to these companies, especially Sony, that there's a hot demand for these things, or or that could have been the the scalping ring. You know, I here, think it was the scalping ring. Yeah, just going and buying everything up. Yeah, like it should have been. Like as soon as that happened, there maybe should have been like a sign of like, huh, okay, well maybe we'll release more. Regardless, like, let's release more, since there's clearly demand for it. Fine. Uh, just kind of spitballing an idea here, I wonder how much of these supply problems, particularly with the PlayStation 5, uh, can be attributed to a non-physical uh, retail release of these consoles, uh, meaning you can't just walk into any old store and go buy it off the shelf. The, the stores are only fulfilling uh Pre-orders, essentially, already made orders. You can't just waltz in and get one. And has that limited supply or whatnot? Or is that being a contributing factor to these uh, current market conditions for PS5s? 
I, I have no idea. I mean, it's certainly a lot easier to limit someone from buying 20 of something if, you know, they physically can't, like, if they have physically have to show up and wait in line. And like, cause I've, I've seen countermeasures been taken, you know, in person lines before where, you know, you basically are given one ticket. It's like, here's your one ticket. You, it's like, you know, show up to this line over here, get a ticket and then go over to that line with your ticket. And then you're allowed one, <laughs> like there's usually some sort of like way to do that in person. And there's not like a thing. It's like, sorry, limit one per store per person. Like come back tomorrow if you want to buy 10 more, but there's all these 200 other people in line waiting. So don't know what to tell you. Like, I mean, they, I'm, I'm sure they could have done something similar like that as well, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's a lot harder to want to restrict people to, you know, from buying stuff when it's online. Certainly if it's basically just, if it stops being like a person has to come in and pick it up and if just basically becomes like you, you hand 10 boxes to your, your FedEx courier or whatever, or whoever you're getting it shipped with and they go to deliver them. Like there's any number of different things that could be happening here. Uh, and I guess uh, we won't know for sure until uh, I guess probably the new year. Once we get out of this uh, Christmas, you know, frenzied shopping cycle, particularly online or frenzied online ordering cycle. And uh, there can be a, a, a decompression uh, of things of sorts. Uh, perhaps as these companies report their uh, fiscal year end numbers come the springtime. Uh, but until then, these new consoles, whoever gets them, they need games to play. And one of the new games that launched this fall was Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And Ubisoft has joined in on the unsubstantiated boastful claims. Uh, it's not just uh, the big uh, tech companies, Sony and Microsoft, Ubisoft getting in on that sweet, sweet nectar as well, as they claimed uh, about a week and a half ago that Assassin's Creed Valhalla is the biggest launch in the Assassin's Creed franchise history, the 13-year history of the Assassin's Creed franchise, which, one, I did not realize the franchise is 13 years old. Two, Jesus Christ, that's kind of impressive. Yeah. So the game itself launched uh, for literally everything except the Switch on November 10th. Uh, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Series X, Series S, PC, Stadia, and Luna back on November 10th. Um, so uh, Ubisoft has said, or specifically uh, Julian Lafreniere, a producer who worked on Assassin's Creed Valhalla, said, quote, We are truly delighted by the enthusiastic response from players and want to thank the fans for their incredible, incredible support. Delivering this game amid a global pandemic was a true tour de force by our teams, and it's fantastic to see players enjoying the game so much. Launch is only the beginning, and we have robust content plans for Valhalla that will keep players immersed in their epic Viking saga for a long time to come. End quote. So, that's... Im- Good on Ubisoft. Uh, I mean, they're in the middle period of the Assassin's Creed franchise. There are some garbage titles, and I don't think the uh, Assassin's Creed name really had the luster that maybe it started with, or perhaps that it has now, uh, because the last couple Assassin's Creed games, Odyssey, Origins, and now Valhalla, seem like they've taken the quality level up to a whole nother notch. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me like... I mean, I'm, I'm sure like a lot of people will agree. And I always saw the comparisons as very, um, happening very frequently, but 
it seems like they saw The Witcher 3 and went, we should probably step our game up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Sony, or Nintendo, I should say, uh, probably bared some of that influence as well with uh, Breath of the Wild. Yeah, like, they saw, like, like a lot of people saw The Witcher 3 and went, damn. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it was kind of a game changer. And I mean, Breath of the Wild probably wasn't going to be Breath of the Wild if it wasn't for The Witcher 3. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. And I think even some of the producers who worked on Breath of the Wild have said as much the influence of North American games, or sorry, Western games on the development and the Japanese development team. And yeah, it's, it's going to be a game that's going to have uh, an impact for many years down the line. And uh, obviously Valhalla still breathing in some of that, uh, some of that uh, successful dust from uh, Witcher 3, so good on Ubisoft. Again, no hard numbers provided, no substantive data to that at all, but uh, we do have hard numbers from independent agencies, and we're going to get into some Nintendo business and Nintendo numbers. It's it's a couple of weeks old at this point, yes, but I think it's still impressive all the same. So uh, before Sony and Microsoft had their consoles go on sale officially uh, in the first half of November, Nintendo set a new sales record for console sales in the month of October. Not just for their own company, but just for entire gaming history for the number of console units sold in the month of October. Again, October, leading into new consoles coming out in November, you would think, oh, this is perhaps a slow time. Perhaps console sales won't be as high, given that people will be saving their shekels, or perhaps have already paid for new consoles from Sony and Microsoft in November. Not the case. Nintendo sold a shitload of Switch units, both Switch and Switch Lite units during the month of October, selling a combined 735,926 units during that month, the 10th month of the year, which represented year-on-year sales growth of apparently 136%. Yeah. And I think a big driver still, like, throughout the whole pandemic and the whole year, really, of those units were Animal Crossing New Horizons, I think. Like, it's sort of gone on to, like, become, like, this big force where, like, people just keep, like, can't get enough of it. Which is crazy to think, considering it came out back in the middle of March, really, once this pandemic started, I mean... Animal Crossing New Horizons was not the cause of this, obviously, but the timing was very fortunate for Nintendo. And, I mean, how fortunate has it been for Nintendo? Can you quantify that for some numbers with me? Well, um, yeah, it's it's now... Animal Crossing New Horizons is now the second best-selling Switch game at 26.04 million copies, like, just in total sold. Just lifetime uh, to date. Yeah, lifetime to date. It's now trailing only Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, which is currently sitting at 28.99 million copies, almost 29 million copies. And it's, it's, yeah, so it's in second place. You know, it, it's zoomed past Smash Brothers Ultimate and Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild and all the other, you know, Switch titles that you can possibly think of. Um, so yeah, it, it it's 
I don't know. I'd, I'd say it's hard to understand why it's done so well, but I can kind of get it. Like you know, when, when it first came out, we talked about it a little bit. It's almost kind of like a meditative experience, which I think maybe a lot of people, you know, are looking for these days still like pandemic's not over, at least in some places like where we're from, we're back up to code red again, which, you know, we've, we're recording this show remotely again. Like there was a little brief period of time when we were able to kind of get together still because, you know, some of the restrictions had been lifted, but they're, they're clamped back down because like we're in our second wave now and it's just, it's still going on. So, you know, in amidst all the craziness, you know, people kind of obviously like one of like the, the classic techniques for dealing with stress is meditation, but traditional meditation is kind of hard to do. And, you know, there's, there's other more non-traditional ways of like achieving the same kind of result. And I think for a lot of people, animal crossing has been that way of doing it. Like it's just, it's not a stressful game. There's no like, there's no fast movements or, you know, stressful things you have to do. Like you're not fighting people. You're not disarming bombs. You're not, you know, doing any time sensitive things. It's just generally just like hang out, pick some weeds, buy some stuff, sell some stuff, talk to people, go fishing, whatever, you know, it's basically like do whatever the game, which, you know, is, I assume, a you know, good way for a lot of people to kind of center themselves. So that must be why it's been doing so well. And that's, that's just my hot take on it. I'm, I also could be totally full of shit. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I wonder if also it's some kind of like a uh, uh, snowball type effect where it's self-perpetuating, you know, as people have gotten into it, that has brought more people into it, uh, brought more people into it, brought more people into it, almost, you know, you know, they tell two friends, they tell two friends, and they tell two friends sort of deal uh, with Animal Crossing New Horizons. But if you look at the activities in the game, it's simple, task-based gaming. Uh, there's a lot of gardening. There's a lot of home design. There's a lot of farming. Um you know, these are simple, fairly stress-free activities. So if you've, you know, spent X amount of time doom scrolling on your phone or, you know, just need a release from thinking about your circumstances that might be COVID related or pandemic related or pandemic induced. Yeah. Here's this really cutesy, very simple, very, you know, non-threatening environment, this land where you have control over things as well. And yeah. again, in now these numbers uh, that you cited there, they're just uh, up until the end of October, as were the console numbers. So I'd imagine uh, Animal Crossing New Horizons is now up, has sold more than 26 million copies. And even so, even to the end of November or end of October, I should say, selling 26 million copies in six and a half months is pretty goddamn spectacular. Yeah. And as we've said before, Animal Crossing, not a top tier Nintendo franchise. It's not A plus. It's not a Mario. It's not a Zelda title. Um, you know, but to be so close to Mario Kart 8 and Mario Kart 8 Deluxe's lifetime sales numbers of at that point, almost 29 million copies. Mario Kart 8 Deluxe was a launch title for the Switch back in March of 2017. So it's had, you know, almost four years on the market to amass that. I think Animal Crossing New Horizons might be one of the most impressive titles, sales-wise, I've ever seen. Yeah. 
So uh, good on everyone involved and good on uh, everyone else who uh, perhaps has recognized that they need to take some time for themselves and are losing themselves in uh, a, a fairly stress-free environment. You know, if, if you just uh, aren't able to sit and focus on your inner voice and your inner thoughts and uh, Animal Crossing is what does it for you, hey, good on you for recognizing that and taking action uh, accordingly. So do what you got to do to get by and take care of you <laughs> because, again, think local, act global. <laughs> take care of yourself first before you can take care of anyone else. Yeah. Uh, but a bit more uh, gaming-related business news here. Uh, uh, I guess one last piece of gaming-related business news here, I should say. Uh, a big deal, actually. I mean... Yeah, no, it's it's a big deal. It's it's a big number that is being put out there because Take Two Interactive, the publishing uh, publishing studio or publishing firm, they are going to be acquiring the studio Codemasters for almost a billion dollars, nine hundred ninety four yeah. million U.S. dollars. Yeah, I mean, like, I know your hesitation in calling it like a big deal because. Like, compared to some of the other big acquisitions and numbers we've seen, even today, um, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Like, it's 994 million US dollars. But then when you think about it, like, no, that's still a crazy amount of money. Like, just because, like, there's other way crazier amounts of money being thrown around doesn't mean that almost a billion dollars is not a crazy amount of money. But yeah, uh, Take Two Interactive is acquiring Codemasters, who, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, developed dirt, but in my head is also one of like the classic names in video games. Like they, they went way back to, you know, the early nineties. Oh God, like, they were developing for the NES. Yeah. They were developing for the NES. Like Watson, like I've, I'm sure we all have like a lot of NES games that have the Codemasters logo stamped in them. Like, uh, like, yeah, it's like they're, they're one of like, they're up there. Like, so yeah, it's like they're, yeah, they're, it's, it's very interesting to see a name like that thrown around these days being acquired by someone, but yeah, yeah. Take two is, has acquired them for that amount of money. And you know, the, the purchase, you know, is very likely going to be completed in the first quarter of 2021. Uh, yeah. And so I, I just had to confirm, uh, just did a quick search on, on Wikipedia and had to confirm my thoughts. Uh, that yes, Codemasters, they've been around since the NES days because they developed micro machines for the NES. Yep, micro machines, uh, as well as like, you know, the adventures of Dizzy, like all, all those right. Dizzy games and stuff as well. Um, for other systems, like there was, I mean, not just MES, NES, like they did multi platform development back then. Like obviously, game studios had to kind of do more than just one system to survive, but. Yeah, they did a lot of stuff, but it seems like in the last few years, they've mostly been focusing on, you know, F1, Dirt, uh, Grid, and a couple of others that, like, just kind of fell into, like, yearly um, dev cycle loops, it seems. Like, there's a new F1 game every year, there's a new Dirt game every year, there's, like, a couple of Dirt offshoot games, like, there's a new Grid every year, there's a, you know, Grid offshoot games and stuff, so they've kind of fell in, into that loop for the last 10, 12 years, but yeah, I, I imagine that take two is kind of looking at that. Like, cause as 
like dirt dirt rally F1 as like the big three um franchises that they're kind of willing to cash in on here but yeah I don't know like it's it's interesting that the name is still going in my head just you know as someone that's been playing video games since the early 90s it's kind of cool to see a name like Codemasters that was never like a big name but was a name nonetheless that it's still kind of being thrown around as a name, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and good on them for uh, still surviving to this day and thriving. Uh, and I think how they've been able to do that is really carve out their niche uh, in the racing genre by doing these games like F1, Dirt, Dirt Rally. I mean, they're uh, one of the few, if not the only one, really doing Dirt uh, or Rally racing game, as far as I can tell, uh, though I will concede that is kind of a blind spot to me in the on the gaming spectrum. Although for Take-Two... As uh, you mentioned, these are annual titles, but these also get take two racing properties. They, they yeah. don't have racing properties. They have a lot of other big properties under their their publishing portfolio, like Grand Theft Auto, Red Dead Redemption from Rockstar. Plus, they own 2K Games, which has NBA 2K, amongst other titles that they publish on an annual basis. But racing? Kind of a total blind spot. Yeah. And those who like racing really like racing games. So to the tune that the company is worth a billion dollars. Yep. <laughs> like, so, so good yeah. on them. Uh, the deal, I think, as you mentioned, will close in the new year. Uh, and so a billion, I mean, yeah, kind of, kind of have to remind yourself, oh yeah, a billion is still a lot of money. Yeah. Like it, it really is like, like we hear about things like you know Apple being worth two trillion dollars, and we then start to think like, oh, a billion's not that much. But then you have to put it back in perspective. A billion is a thousand millions. Like, do you have a million dollars? Like, there's not like tons and tons of millionaires walking around. Like, I don't have a million dollars. Like, a million dollars seems like a lot of money to me, right? Uh, like, to most people, like, it, like it's like you said, like the first million is your hardest, right? Like. Yeah, it, that's one of the uh, axioms uh, often repeated in business. You know, the first million's the hardest, but the first trillion's really the hardest. But I mean, even look a couple of weeks ago, we spoke of uh, Microsoft acquiring Bethesda to the tune of seven and a half billion dollars. Yeah. So, so the the perspective uh, is kind of skewed on these deals, and I think we've kind of become desensitized to what the value of a billion dollars is. And the answer is, it's a goddamn lot. It is. It is. Like you, like some companies, like help a company being worth a billion dollars is still a good milestone as well. Like there's nothing, there's nothing against that being a good milestone either, right? Like it's, I don't know, like it's, it's weird how it all has kind of shaken down where, yeah, it's a billion dollars doesn't seem like it's worth reporting on, but it's like, oh, it's, it's a lot. So, I mean, as uh, as capitalism just continues to march forward and there's more and more billionaires, I guess, uh, you know, you know, the next uh, big thing will be just casual trillion dollar deals or whatnot. Yeah, if we, if we ever get to that point, I, I can't imagine what it would take to get to that point or what the world looks like at that point. But, uh, you know, trillion dollar deals. God help us all. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. 
but uh so that is the that concludes the 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 gaming business por- uh, portion of, of this week's show uh but we still have one last order of business to get to uh if you're kind of overwhelmed by all those numbers all the newness and just everything going on then let's take some some minutes together and just kind of wax nostalgic about things from yesteryear perhaps things that are collecting dust on your shelf uh things you haven't really experienced in a while if ever if at all in your lifetime and we can talk about them and perhaps guide you into the direction of them so you can have a pleasant experience. We have two items in our Blast from the Past this week. One is an album that is goddamn old. The other is a movie that's not as goddamn old, but still kind of goddamn old. So uh, of the two, where would you like to start this week? Oh, well, let's start with the less old movie, I think. So yes, as I said, uh, it's a movie that's uh, not not as goddamn old, but still kind of goddamn old, as it was released on November 27th of the year 1985. It was the fourth entry in this uh, fairly beloved, and I believe at that point still beloved, uh, uh, sports movie franchise. This movie is Rocky IV. Yeah, Rocky IV being the one where uh, Sylvester Stallone as Rocky Balboa single-handedly defeats communism. (laughs) He alone tore down and broke down the Iron Curtain and uh, showed that we can all live in peace and get along. And it was uh, not long after that that uh, the Soviet Union fell, uh, the the Berlin Wall came down, and uh, we all lived in a peaceful utopia after that, thanks to Rocky Balboa. I mean, you you joke. Half of those things did indeed happen. <laughs> In the wake of Rocky Four coming out, yes. <laughs> I mean, not as a result of it, but yeah. Um, Rocky Four. <sighs> Fun movie, but the franchise at this point was no longer rooted in reality. <laughs> the first Rocky movie, great. Classic excellent movie like actually a legitimately goofy a good movie like like people are often like you know people that like you know maybe don't know a lot about things like might not realize that the first rocky movie and the first rambo movie which was called was actually called first blood we don't need to get into that whole slumazolo about the naming but both of those first movies were actually legitimately good movies from like a movie standpoint like they weren't cheesy they weren't like action movies they weren't really anything that were like that you end up that we now know Sylvester Stallone for they weren't that they were legitimately good movies like they were you know stories about you know kind of downtrodden down on the luck characters that like you know maybe didn't have the best fairest shake in life and you know they were kind of underdogs and you were kind of rooting for them. And like, they had like, you know, their own issues to work through and all that sort of thing. But something that seemed to happen with both movies, because both movies turned into franchises and as franchises grow on, when they go on for long enough, all of the stuff that you were like the, that basically made, made the first movie what it was ends up kind of, getting lost usually in cases like these because people latch on to 
I don't want to say the wrong parts, but for things to become franchises, there have to be like franchisable parts and like heartwarming underdog stories aren't franchisable. No, you can't make multiple movies about the underdog overcoming the odds and finding success, you know, in this fight, in this fight, in this fight, you know, after a while, your protagonist becomes established and you have to kind of try and do different things with the story. But for some reason in Rocky four, that became Rocky Balboa fighting a Soviet fighter who's just completely jacked on steroids as played by Dolph Lundgren. Yeah. Basically beating a genetically engineered, like perfect specimen of a human being who is, uh, yeah, <laughs> basically like the Soviet wunderkind, like just like their secret weapon to try to like, because this was like near the end of the Cold War, like America was still very much at, you know, Cold War with the Soviet Union. And yeah, this was sort of like an allegory for that, even though not a very thinly veiled one, <laughs> like it wasn't very like clever about what it was being. But it was, yeah, like... Yeah, there's no subtlety to Rocky Four. No, not at all. Not in any sort of way. Do I enjoy it? Yes. It's still a, it's still a fun movie. Like, I'm gonna say it's a fun movie, but it's not a good movie in the way that Rocky One was a good movie. Yeah, Rocky Four is a total cheeseball movie. And that's a-okay. Yeah, it it comes off. Now, you're talking about how good a movie the first Rocky was. The first Rocky movie, when it came out in 76, uh, won the Academy Award for both Best Director and Best Picture. That's how yes. good a movie it was. Yes. Like, it was legitimately, like, a, a good story that had heart. <laughs> you know, like, you watch it, and it's, like, it's well-acted. Like, the characterizations are all very good. You know, it was clearly Sylvester Stallone holding, you know, you know, this thing that was near and dear to him to his close to his chest because like he knew that he wanted to be in it. Like, you know, like he was offered, there, there's a whole mythology around the first Rocky movie that's it's very interesting to read about. It's even more interesting to read about whether or not it's true. <laughs> like there's like, it's like a whole, it's a whole thing, but Regardless, the first Rocky, good. Rocky four has like, maybe like, whenever you think of like a cheesy movie that has like a ridiculous, like, um, uh, montage, like a training montage, Rocky four, you know, is that movie for me <laughs> that like has that thing. Like, right? Like, unless I'm remembering my Rockies wrong, Rocky Four has that ridiculous montage where him and Apollo were kind of training, right? Uh, certainly, uh, training, but also then, uh, later on in the movie, once uh, Rocky goes to, uh, to Russia or to the Soviet Union to, uh, have a rematch with Drago after, um, after Apollo Creed, after gets, Drago, you know, gets killed in the ring. Yeah. Yeah. Apollo dies in the ring from Drago in the first fight. Um, because he does not take it seriously and just thinks he's going to, you know, steamroll over this Soviet specimen and just gets the shit beat out of him in Las Vegas in front of Rocky. So then Rocky has to uh, avenge his fallen friend and also defend America and goes to Russia to do it. Um, but yeah, he's like basically in Siberia training. He's, you know, hauling logs. He's 
I don't know if he's beating up slabs of meat again like he did in the first couple of months, but he's still, you know, running in deep snow. He's doing pull-ups while hanging upside down in a barn sort of deal. You know, he's got a ridiculous mountain man beard, which unfortunately he had to shave for the fight. He probably could have rocked it, but uh yeah, he like I, there's a couple like ridiculous montages in Rocky Four, and they're cheesy. They're totally cheesy, but they're enjoyable. Yeah. Like, and the the final fight, you know, when you look at the actual fight, like, it's not a real fight that would ever actually happen, even as, like, outside of the realm of it being, like, a grotesque, like, I don't know, weird exhibition match or something, like, because, like, Sylvester Stallone, not a big guy. Like, no. I mean, like, what, five, six, like, maybe 140 pounds ripped. He was ripped in this movie, like, super jacked. But, you know, not the biggest guy. Whereas Dolph Lundgren, he's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, or something, and like, just huge. Like, you would never, like, just the size difference of these two men is like, no, these are like wildly different weight classes. Like, you can't have that. <laughs> I, I mean, it would, it would be a stretch to see them in the same weight class. I mean, Mike Tyson is not tall, but he fought at heavyweight. Yeah. So, so it is in theory possible, but it's highly unlikely. And even so with Mike Tyson fighting at heavyweight, like he was just loaded with muscle and that's what made him part of what made him, I should say, such a goddamn dangerous fighter. Yeah. I mean, maybe he still has it. We'll see as uh, we are recording on the day that Mike Tyson has his uh, return fight once again, um, which we're both kind of intrigued by, but uh, um, also intrigued to read the results after and see what comes of it. But uh, uh, yeah, Rocky Balboa in Rocky Four. I mean, I, if it's on, I kind of have to watch it. It's one of those movies. I don't care how many times I've seen it. I enjoy it. It's ridiculous. And I get the sense of it that it doesn't take itself seriously. I mean, it's trying to be a bit serious, but especially the whole end scene after Rocky's uh, revenge match where he defeats Drago and then he gets on the microphone standing in the ring in, you know, the middle of whatever arena in Moscow saying, you know, I can change, you can change, we can change, the whole world can change while the entire like high administration of the, uh, the Soviet government is just right there looking on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and implying yeah. that, you know, oh, Rocky's words are, you know, touching these, these men, the, these commanders and, uh, politicians in such a way that it might bring about genuine substantive change. Come on. Yeah. It's insane. It's totally insane. <laughs> but but yeah. you also watch it for the boxing match and, and the fight scenes of, uh, of Drago beating the shit out of Apollo and then Rocky and Drago have just having a knockdown drag him out fight. It's, it's entertaining. Like, the boxing matches in the Rocky movies, always enjoyable to watch. Yeah. Even just for the sound effects that with it, where each blow is just thundering. <laughs> yes, exactly. So Rocky four, enjoyable, 35 years old. As I said, kind of goddamn old, but not as goddamn old as this next thing we're going to talk about. It's an album that was released on November 27th. 1970. Uh, this is an album that uh, I, I know you regard as a masterpiece. Many, many, many others regard as a masterpiece. This is All Things Must Pass by George Harrison. Yeah, so I don't know the real story behind it, but like the general impression I got about this album is that 
George Harrison maybe wasn't really given his proper due when he was in the Beatles as a songwriter, because from what I understand, Paul McCartney was kind of a bit of a control freak. And, you know, Paul McCartney viewed himself and John Lennon as the two main songwriters. And, you know, they would kind of throw George Harrison, a couple of bones, every album be like, fine, let George have his song. Despite the fact that like on more than one album, his song quote unquote that he had on the album was like the hit song for the album. <laughs> like, you know, I'm thinking tax man, like something, you know, like he's not a bad songwriter. Like I would say George Harrison is right up there with both, you know, you know, the other two quote unquote main songwriters of the Beatles. Like he definitely deserved due, but like, I guess as a result, like he had a lot of like ideas rejected. So, or just maybe just decided not even to bother. So I guess he had like a lot of pent up creative energy that wasn't really being used in the Beatles. So as soon as the Beatles kind of like stopped being a thing, he decided to release a triple album. A solo album that was like almost two hours long called All Things Must Pass. And that's what All Things Must Pass is. It's a really long album that has tons of songs on it. And there's lots of great songs on it. Like, I mean, I, I, it's a very heavy, like guy in his guitar type album, but it's also very entertaining for that aspect. I mean, uh, if you know no other song, like two hours worth of music is a lot of goddamn music and, and not every song is going to twig you in the same way, but this is the album that had my sweet Lord on it. Yes. And isn't it a pity? And like, wah, wah, like, yeah, like, but like, yeah, my sweet Lord, like you've probably heard that song before and the, you probably thought, Oh, it's a Beatles song. No, it's a George Harrison song specifically George Harrison off of all things must pass. Yeah. My sweet Lord is a masterpiece of a song. It will stand the test of time. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's the second track on the album. Like there's a lot of songs going on here and uh, other songs say something like Wawa. It sounds like it could also stand as a Beatles song from the late Beatles era. Yeah. And then you, you know, just go through, uh, it's, it's a good mix, I'd say, between, uh, very simple, uh, songs with some stripped down production, you know, basically just George Harrison and his guitar singing. And then you get other songs like Wawa and things like that with, with much fuller, much richer production elements to them. Yeah. Where George Harrison, uh, brings in some of his friends on different songs too. Yeah, I, I, that's the kind of interesting thing too about like those early, <clears throat> those early Beatles solo albums because like you will see like a lot of like, like Ringo plays drums on several songs on this album. Uh, yeah, like there, there's actually a lot of people like the, if you look at the personnel for all things must pass, it's like really quite impressive. Like, most of the lead guitars were like Eric Clapton because they were still friends then. Um, you see like Klaus Wurman was playing bass, Carl Radel also on bass, like Billy Preston on the organ, like who also collaborated a lot with the Beatles. Uh, and then like other names, when you're going through like P 
Peter Frampton played some acoustic guitar on the album. It must have been, you know, a young man, maybe as a young session musician. Uh, Phil Collins played some congas on a song because I guess he was just kind of becoming known as the, gen- the drummer and stuff of Genesis then. Ginger Baker played drums on a song. Like, yeah, like there's lots of people are on this. But interesting, though, that the only other Beatle that's on this album is Ringo. So that might kind of tell you a thing or two about maybe how relationships were going at the time. And partly why uh, the Beatles broke up around that time when they did. Yeah. So all things must pass. If if you're just kind of... Uh, you know, just kind of feeling it. You're just, uh, you spent maybe a bit too, too much time doom scrolling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just need, uh, just need to chill. You just need to sit, be still and relax. Uh, maybe you've had enough, uh, of Animal Crossing's New Horizons. You've done what you can do in there. You just need to chill. This is a good album just to put on, have in the background and just kind of relax to. Yeah. Like I, you know, in listening to it uh, again in recent times, um, I got a lot of just, uh, chill, quote unquote, chill sensibilities off this, similar to what I do or what I get from, uh, uh, David Gilmore album too. Yeah. I mean, that's very fair to say. Like, it's very like kind of unpretentious, just very much like, like, let's just record some, like, you know, easy to listen to music. Absolutely. And, uh, it is 50 years old, uh, this week, uh, having been released on November 27th, 1970. Still holds up even after 50 years. Yeah. Which, I mean, to say something is 50 years old sounds like, oh, wow, it's from ancient times, but no, that puts it back in the 70s. Yeah. Which, <laughs> which is, a little bit weird to think like, you know, cause like we're from the eighties, like the seventies was only like, you know, 10 years before we were born. <laughs> but it is what it is. And all things must pass is a good album worth your time. Uh, some great musicianship, uh, some songwriting all by George Harrison, uh, worth it. Check it out. Um, you don't have to listen to it front to back all in one sitting. Feel free to break it up as your situation dictates. It's a triple album. Jesus Christ. Yep. So the real question is, when is your triple album going to be released? (laughs) I mean, one day, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And before that, we uh, spoke of Rocky Four, which is celebrating its 35th anniversary, a cheeseball sports movie, but still a very enjoyable sports movie. If you want to remember what communism was like and uh, what eventually brought about its demise, Rocky Balboa in a boxing match. <laughs> yes. That's what they don't tell you in the history books, but uh, it was really Rocky and that boxing match. So uh, you owe, uh, we all owe a debt of gratitude to Rocky for uh, taking us out of the Cold War. So thanks, Mr. Balboa. Thanks. Yes. Thanks, Mr. Balboa, for ending, you know, years long nuclear tension between the <laughs> United States and Russia. Who knew all it took was, uh, was, uh, one good boxing match, you know? Yeah, one good boxing match and some, like, you know, punch trucks, punch trucks, punch drunk slurring words at the end of it by, you know, some American guy who you could barely understand. <laughs> who 
can barely see out his eyes as he's been brutalized by uh, your Soviet specimen fighter. So, yes, who knew? Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> but uh, that about wraps us up for this week's edition of the Arcade. We thank you so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, and uh, uh, hope to be back with you again in short order. Uh, if you have questions, comments, or concerns about anything you have heard on this program, do you still enjoy All Things Must Pass? Do you agree that Rocky Four is a cheeseball sports movie that is still oh so good? Have you... Uh, uh, put in the time to Animal Crossing New Horizons. Is that uh, still doing it for you to bring you some sense of calm and centering in these crazy, turbulent times of ours? Multiple ways you can get a hold of us. We are on social media, on Twitter, at The Arcade Show, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Arcade Show. And if you wish to write words in the long form, as our ancestors used to do, you can email us, info at thearcadeshow.com. And if you haven't done so already, you can write, uh, you can rate, review, subscribe, all those things to us on iTunes and the Google Play podcasts. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So, uh, that about wraps us up for now. So all that's left to say is until next time, good night, everybody. Good night.